the early 90 Trailblazers, you know, Drexler, Clyde, and Terry, or Drexler, Clyde, the same person, Drexler, Terry, and Buck. <laughs> it's been, it's been a long, long day for, for work so far. Today's podcast is brought to you by Bombas.com. Save 20% off your first order at www.getbombas.com slash holybackboard, one word. Let's go! All right, everybody, welcome to the 45th edition of the Holy Backboard Podcast. I am Dustin, here in very toasty Rip City, and I got my man... Sage Chilling in Southern Oregon, and you know what? I am fat and hot, and I'm not having a good time right now. I can't wait to talk Blazers. Yeah, when you said chilling, uh, that's only in, what, the figurative sense? Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, chilling was the first thing that came to my mind. It, it is our routine, yeah. so... We'll give you a pass for that, but I am very excited uh, to announce that we have a very special guest on this week's episode. You may know her as T.C. Biggs. Is that correct? T.C.B. Biggs, and it's got extra B in there. T.C.B. Biggs. T-Mom. She does a fantastic podcast over at Blazer's Edge. If you haven't checked it out, I highly encourage you to do so. Tara, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me to come on. I'm really happy to be here. I, I was telling you guys earlier, I think I've listened to every single one of your podcasts. So I'm happy that I can be a part of it. And I have to warn you, I'm flying solo without my partner, Joe, today. She's the hard-hitting analysis half of this duo. So I'll do my best to represent the two of us well. I, I think you'll do that and more. Sage. Today, some big Blazer news just comes out of nowhere. Another classic Woj bomb. The Blazers lock up C.J. McCollum. Maximum four-year. It's been rumored 102, 106 million. Either way, young C.J. is getting paid. And I notice you're wearing his jersey right now, so that looks like a really good investment, my friend. I know. I, I, I was kind of worried about it when I bought it uh, right before my road trip. I wanted to look cool, obviously, but uh, C.J. was what I was rolling with, so I'm very happy that he's on the Blazers for five more years. Tara, I've seen a couple people, more than a couple actually, and it surprised me that they're concerned about the luxury tax. Portland's going over. They're paying too much money for their backcourt. To me, I don't know how anybody could be anything other than joyous at this news. What are you thinking about this? Well, I think the Blazers spent a lot of time last year building up this whole narrative about McLillard, about uh, Damian Lord and CJ McCollum and how they were going to take us into the future. So it makes perfect sense to me that they completed it by going ahead and taking care of it before the season. We don't have to worry about anything. I... I figure this probably means that CJ is not going anywhere, but I don't know anything for sure. I will say a million times over probably tonight, I am not a GM. So I don't know what all of this really means. But to me, it's sending a message to the people. It's backing up that message that they played with all year last year, which was CJ and Dame are going to lead us into the future. So it's nice to see that consistency. I thought really hard last year about what it was going to be like if we were going to rely on the two of them together for a really, really long time. And it looks like we're going to have them together for a long time. There's some talk about whether or not they, I don't want to say redundant, but whether or not they are too similar in their playing styles. And can we really um, move the dial when we have two guys who are very similar? We have other people who say that just makes us more flexible. So 
I'm I'm excited that we now know which direction we're going in the future. That really that makes me feel good to know like okay, this is where we're going to start. Now let's see where we're going to go. Yeah, I completely agree and I think maybe and we're going to go back in time for this TBT episode. Maybe 15, 16 years ago, a player like McCollum and a player like Lillard would seem redundant. But in today's NBA, when there's a premium on positionless basketball and creating, being able to create your own shot and shoot from the outside, I think the more the merrier. And that's why I really like the addition of Evan Turner. He may not be the best outside shooter. He can get into the mid-range, but he can handle the basketball, create for himself, create for others. That's really what CJ can do. And when he got his opportunity... In the playoffs against Memphis, he really showed the world what he was capable of, and he backed that up by winning the Most Improved Player um, of the Year award this past season. So, I mean, I think it was just a genius move to lock him up now. Not only does it send a signal to the rest of the NBA that, hey, we take care of ours, Mm -hmm. but it shows that our best players, they not only live in Portland, but they want to play with Portland. Uh, there's been so much frustration over past free agency periods where we can't lure that big fish. Well, we got two big fish right now who want to stay in this pond, and I think we should embrace that. And lastly, we're not going to have any cap room next summer anyways, so go ahead, lock him up like you said, Tara, and don't let a team sign him to maybe a poison pill type of contract or with um, an option after year three, for example. CJ's locked in just like Dame. No, No trade kickers, no options. Um, they're in here for the long haul, and you factor in his one year left on his rookie deal, both CJ and Dame are at least trailblazers through 2021. And I think it solidifies the notion that Neil's not looking to trade CJ for that second star. He's looking to trade others to find a third star to pair with his superstar backcourt. Yeah, one of the things both Joe and I have talked about before, we both love Star Trek, and so we have tried to figure out which of the uh, Star Trek casts our particular group of guys reminds us of, and we were trying to decide if Damian Lord and CJ McCollum were more like Kirk and Spock or like Riker and Picard. And I think we came down on Riker and Picard because they both have very similar skill sets and they both could lead their own ship easily. Whereas when you're looking at Kirk and Spock, Spock could have his own command, but he's a science officer. He really has specific interests that are very different and complementary but divergent from Damien's. So we've kind of been throwing, we've been playing around with this and we think that, um, that uh, we got a, a Riker and Picard team here that it's going to be really strong. I'll be honest. I know absolutely nothing about oh, Star Trek. I but, thought you did. But your analysis and breakdown of that was perfect. And I am fully on board because <laughs> yes, they, they both can lead. They both can do it all. They just do it together. There's no egos. I mean, you look at both of their Twitter cover photos, and it's of them embracing with that with the text overlay of brothers. I can't remember a duo or two star players who have been this close as as friends, um, not only on Portland but in the entire NBA. And you know, I think that really sets the tone. So when you bring in new guys like like Turner and Azili and Napier and and Layman. They know this is the culture, and Neil Olshay mentioned that in, I believe, the Alan Crabber Myers Leonard press conference. That when you bring in new players, it's no longer okay. We'll see you, you know, a week before training camp. It's like okay, we're going to see you beginning right after Labor Day. You're going to be in Portland, preferably live in Portland, 
and work with the team in our practice facility year round. That's the new norm. And, you know, you got to give it up to Neil for, for setting that, that precedent for finding players like Dame and Myers and CJ for owning that and setting the tone. And lastly, you have to thank Paul Allen because really none of this is possible without him opening up his checkbook and saying, go over the luxury tax. I don't care. Portland could be looking at a $27 million luxury tax bill in 2018. But you know what? We're thankful we have an owner that can just kind of shrug that off. And a lot of teams, they don't have that. So be very thankful, Portland. I think you forgot the, the newest player for the Trailblazers, Tim Quarterman, too. You, true, true story, Sage. You texted me. I did not get his name right. <laughs> this was right after I saw the CJ News. And I'm like, oh, cool, Tim Quarterman to the Blazers. Is he some new awesome assistant head coach that you've been talking about? Because I know you're on the assistant coach grind. And I found out he's like some 6'6 point guard from LSU. He, to me, seems like uh, a training camp invite who might be able to beat out Luis Montero. But I think that's probably his peak right now. I mean, if I described to you what his skill set is, you, you'd say Neil's on the right track. He's, he, can, he can play defense really well, willing passer, good passer, and can hit an open spot-up jumper. If he was better, I'd be more impressed but he did go to LSU so I, I've known him. Yeah I think we're, we're gonna get him all the knowledge we can out of him about Ben Simmons. That's what we're getting him for. They did not get along well so. Maybe uh, he's got some dirt. Uh, LSU's scheme was not cohesive to both those players. All right so the Blazers have made quite a bit of moves. The only really missing piece left is either that consolidation trade uh, maybe a Mason Plumlee extension and the signing of, of Maurice Harkless. Uh, Tara, what have been your thoughts so far from really an extremely busy Trailblazers offseason? Well, I went into this offseason absolutely sure that the Blazers were not going to sign anybody whose name had an H in it. We weren't going to get Al Horford. We weren't going to sign Hassan Whiteside. And we weren't getting um, Dwight Howard. I, I just felt like we were going to be getting some more under-the-radar uh, free agents, which is what happens every time we get somebody that we're all looking one direction and somebody else comes in. I was actually kind of surprised that we got Festus of Zuli because we were talking about him beforehand. Overall, I what one of the things that I love about basketball is just getting to know the players. And so for me, this is exciting because it's it's players that really were on the fringe and have interesting stories. And we're going to learn how uh, who they are along with watching how they play. Um, I one of the things that surprised me about Evan Turner is that he's pretty divisive. I mean, he's divisive in Portland, but even in uh, everywhere else he's been, he's been very divisive. So I was kind of surprised that we um, brought somebody in that previous fan bases had such mixed feelings about. I think when you draft a guy number two and they don't immediately, you know, just set the set the world on fire, then everyone immediately is like, oh, it's a bust. And I think he's been operating under that for a long time. And so I think that's a hard thing for him to... Um, to play up to and maybe, you know, yet another fresh start is going to be good for him. I liked Festus Azile. I started liking him at the, towards the end of the season and thinking that, cause 
my my wish list thing was to get you know a center who could defend the rim, and um, I liked what he brought, and I liked the fact that he's basically a blank slate. He has not been playing basketball for compared to other players. He hasn't been playing basketball for that long, so I think he can be molded very well into Terry Stotts' system. He ha- doesn't come in with like a huge pile of you know the way he learned how to do things. He's coming in, and Terry Stotts is going to be like, okay, this is what you need to do. Stand here, do this, and I think I think it'll be fun. Um, fun to watch that. I'm kind of excited about Shabazz Napier too. I don't know how much we're going to get to see him, but I like those, you know, those smaller dynamic guys who can pull off some fun, fancy moves and are fun to watch. I I was at summer league and I got to see him a little bit before he got injured and yeah, he was a fun guy to watch. I just, I would want him to be fun. I want interesting guys of strong character. And I, I think, you know, we're heading in that direction. Have you followed Evan Turner yet? Oh yeah. Okay, because he's a hoot on social media. So the the minute that I found out that we got Evan Turner, I went to his Wikipedia page, and somebody had changed his profile to Jar Jar Binks, hmm. and it was like on the side, the little box on the side on Wikipedia, it said that he was from Tatooine, and somebody had changed all these odd things, and I was like, what is up with that? So. That was just a weird start in the first place, so I'm kind of intrigued to see where that's going. I didn't know if it was, like, some mean Boston Celtics person who didn't like him and was like, Jar Jar's gone and out of here, or I don't know what it was about, but I was like, well, this guy's going to be interesting. Yeah, if you ever get a chance, I read this book last summer. It was by Mark Titus. He played with Evan Turner and Greg Oden and and Mike Conley at Ohio State. It's called Don't Put Me In, Coach, The Stories of an End-of-the-Bench Reserve. Right, and, I've heard of that book. Yeah, and he and Evan Turner didn't get along, t- to say the least. And he's got quite a bit of colorful stories about Evan that show his character, and not 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 character as in like the type of person he is. Just he he is a, he is a character. He's a you know like you said, mixed mixed results from different fan bases. And I definitely think Turner's matured from his college years. I think we all have matured from our college years. But it's sh- it's just a funny read to see, you know what he was like behind the scenes and you know he's he's probably humbled going to Philadelphia and not living up to the number two draft pick but I think he had two great years in Boston kind of rejuvenated himself and he sees himself as a missing piece to a already really good trailblazer team and I think he's going to really compliment this team I know a lot of fans who are not so keen on the signing maybe thought we paid him too much but as you mentioned we weren't signing any of those 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 triple h's we weren't going to get anybody huge this is still Portland Oregon um, you have to overpay to get somebody to come here. And that's what we did. And I, I'm really looking forward to seeing him. Um, but for what Festus, I love about him, is he wanted to come here. It, it's You don't often see free agents seek out Portland, especially of his caliber. I mean, he would have been extremely sought after had he been unrestricted at the very beginning of the process. Thankfully, you know, I guess thankfully or, un, you know, unfortunately, however, however you want to think about it, Kevin Durant goes to Golden State midway through the process they have to make him unrestricted, and now only so many teams have cap space. But he comes to Portland. I think we got a really good deal on Festus, and we're loaded. Um, we're going to be talking about the 2000 Trailblazers. This squad we have right now is eerily similar. I think there's a little more star power with this current group, but there's no denying just the overall depth and versatility of that 2000 squad. I'm curious, what do you guys think the Blazers are going to do about Mo Harkless? Personally, of all the restricted free agents, I would have ranked them Mo, AC, and Myers. So I'm a little disappointed that he hasn't been locked up. I think he has the most uh, 
not only potential, but I thought he showed the most last year. Uh, he's a versatile three or four, just attacks the rim. I thought he saved our ass quite a bit in that Clipper series just with his offensive rebounds and, and clutch plays down the stretch. His defense to be able to guard a Chris Paul, to be able to stick to a Clay Thompson, um, that's to me is invaluable. And I really hope we bring him back, even if it's for the qualifying offer, because I would want to keep him and it allows you to trade a couple other guys because you know you can slide Mo right in. And, and Mo is a player that, Give him time, he will shine. I just love his motor. I love watching players that have a motor like that. So keeping him was a pretty big objective for me this offseason. So seeing that it hasn't been done yet is kind of disturbing, but I definitely want him on the squad for next year. What were your thoughts? How, what do you feel about Motera? Oh, I don't know. I didn't say anything because I can't decide. Oh. <laughs> I'm really, I, I've enjoyed having him on the team. I like to watch him play. When he was playing, I I did feel like sometimes he checked out if he things if he didn't come on and have a good uh, if he didn't come on and immediately have some success when he stepped on. I felt like sometimes he could check out, but surrounded by more mature players, he would uh, rise to the occasion. And by check out, I mean like he'd go stand to, you know away from the rest of the players in the huddle, or he'd sit down while everybody else was standing, things like that. And then I noticed that because I watched a lot of things that happen off the court a lot. But then I would notice that, you know, Gerald Henderson or one of the, the older guys would kind of talk to him and get him inspired. And I know that he and Damien have become close and Damien has been somewhat of a mentor for him. So I think he could really blossom here, but I also think he, um, he grew enough last year in Portland that he could also blossom a lot of other places. And I just, I don't know in the grand scheme of things, if he's a piece that I feel like we need as much as we need some of the other pieces. I know that Myers is kind of a lightning rod with you guys. I <laughs> I think he's <laughs> I think he's a very important piece, and I don't know that I would call Mo Harkless as important of a piece. Yeah, I do remember hearing Mo Harkless saying he got an important like text from Dame like to keep his head up. And for Mo, he's still super young. Um, first round pick, I believe he was a sixth man of the year at St. St. John's in the Big East. Uh, drafted either late lottery or right outside the lottery. And his playing time, which was not really similar to most rookies or young players, decreased almost year after year until we essentially got him for a draft pick that will unlikely ever have to relent to the Magic. And so for him, just I think he just wants to play. And I think that's the same for a lot of young players is, you know, 23, 24 years old, they, they're going on their third or fourth, fifth year. They just want to play basketball. Let's be honest. He was definitely a lottery pick because there's no way the Magic weren't in the lottery that year. <laughs> I thought he was Philadelphia's pick, though. Oh, God, you're going to make me look. Wait, uh, no, I have, uh, let's see, do, do, do. who are we talking about? We are talking about, <sighs> why don't I see? Oh, he's out of the lottery. Damn it, he was a Philly pick. Oh, I got you, Sage. <sighs> I was trying to be funny more than, <laughs> the joke was totally worth it. I'll, I'll give you that. We'll, we'll let the joke slide. I mean, I am the one who edits it, so. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like he was number 15 in 2012. Mm -hmm. For 2012, we have number 6, number 12, number 15, and number 30. Wasn't it 11? Uh, Austin, Myers? Was yeah. he 11? Yeah. Yeah, I think Myers was 11. Boom! Because okay. Austin Rivers was 10. That's the only reason I know. So before we jump into this this throwback Thursday, Tara, give us a little bit of background to our listeners as to 
why you're a fan, maybe how you became a fan, favorite Blazer memory, uh, favorite player, um, anything that the listeners would want to know. Sure. I am a lifelong Portlander, except for the 13 years that I lived in Eugene, so I did not stray very far, and I was always in the Blazers world, although I didn't really become a big fan until I think about the 89-90 or 90-91 season, and it was really fun to listen to you guys talk the last time you did a throwback. It was the 1991 playoff series. Yep. That was the year that my husband and I got married. And we got married on the day of the last game of the season. And then for our honeymoon, we went and we drove around the southwest United States. And it happened to pretty much coincide with the Blazers, Blazers playoff series against the Jazz and Phoenix. So we would go to bars or we would like go to the campground or something and we would listen and follow all of the games. So that series was like really special to me because it was when we got married and the team was so good and so fun. So, uh, and then when we lost, we didn't have like a solid end date for our, our trip, our honeymoon. And then when the Blazers lost and we're out, we were like, okay, time to go home. <laughs> so that, <laughs> that, that was when we headed home. But so that, the, those were the teams that I, that I really loved. And I, in the late 90s, by then, I had three little kids, so I didn't get to spend a lot of time watching games. I would actually park them in front of the of the TV and t- have them tell me what the score was to like help them learn their numbers and stuff. And my oldest one, who was a real smarty pants, I'd be like, okay, well, what's the score? All right, well, who's ahead? Well, how much are they by ahead? How many points do the Blazers need to score? So me and the kids all watched it. But then life got busy. And around the early 2000s, I think... On like March 6, 2001, when the Blazers lost on the night that they retired Clyde Drexler's jersey, I was so mad at them for like five years. I was just like, I don't want to have anything to do with them. I was so mad at them. I could not forgive them for losing on the night they retired Clyde Drexler's jersey. But then, like many people, around the time we got Brandon Roy, I I was totally ready to get back. I missed the Blazers, and so I've been super into them since then. My kids are now grown up and they all have lives of their own so I have time to you know really focus on the Blazers like I didn't for many years <laughs> so so that's kind of how I came to it and I do so as you guys know I do a little bit of writing for Blazers Edge and I do the podcast with Joe a couple times a month and she and I just get to talk basketball and we love doing it we love the Trailblazers and anytime I get to talk just hang out and talk about basketball I am a happy camper so Thanks again for inviting me. <laughs> of course. And the game we are going to talk about is game six of the 2000 Western Conference Finals between the Trailblazers and the Lakers. And this was your choice. Uh, Sage texted you and was like, what game do you want to, to talk about? He sent me back a screenshot and I just did like the prayer hands emoji because <laughs> this is one of my all time favorite games. Like you, I really grew up with the the early '90 Trailblazers. You know Drexler, Clyde, and Ter- or Drexler, Clyde. The same person, Drexler, Terry, and Buck. We it's been it's about. been a long, long day for, for work so far. Uh, to my point, but I was so young that I have to go back to get those memories. I still really remember watching that entire series against the Lakers that whole year, really, where. Even the year before, we kind of came out of nowhere, made it to the Western Conference Finals. We were the 12 deep Blazers. That summer, we made that big deal to get Pippen and Steve Smith, the Lakers, countered by getting Glenn Rice and Phil Jackson. And really, once those four moves were set in place, it was 
everyone knew it was the Blazers or the Lakers. One of those two teams was going to come out of the West, and that was really the NBA Finals of that season. Give Indiana credit. They were a solid team, even beat Portland twice in the regular season and pushed the Lakers to six games in the Finals. But everyone knew it was really the Blazers and the Lakers that year. And for a while, it seemed like it was going to be live up to that. I believe both teams were, what, like 45 and 11 um, in, in February. If I can bring up this date... Like at All-Star break? Yes. Yep, it was February 29th. Both teams were 45-11. and 11. The Lakers came into Portland and, and beat us by three, 90-87. I remember just being really devastated. Uh, TNT actually picked up that game. It was a Tuesday night game. It was that big. And, even, and 16 years ago, broadcast just, just didn't switch things around. So this was really huge for TNT to come and say, okay, we want to put this game on live national television. And, you know, it really sent Portland into into a whirlwind that year. We lost... Hold on, let me bring this up. So we were 45-11, and 11, and we really only finished 59-23. and 23. So if you do the math, 14 and... And 12, I mean, that's that that wasn't the Blazers. And so a lot of people thought going into that playoffs, even though Portland was the three seed, the Lakers were just going to steamroll through everybody. I mean, they had the league's best record. They were, what, 67 and 15. At one point, I was listening to the broadcast of that game six. They mentioned the Lakers had won 30 of 31 games. Um, just incredible. And they had not lost three games in a row all season. So like the Warriors this year, who, who, had, who hadn't lost back-to-back for a while, they hadn't lost three in a row. And when Portland lost game four, they were down 3-1. It, it really seemed pretty bleak. I mean, Tara, wouldn't you agree with that? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was it, the, the Lakers, you know, it was I think it was the year four of the Kobe and Shaq duo. And yep. they were really hitting their stride at this point. And they were strong and they were dominant. Shaq was incredible. I think... He got MVP that year, if yeah, I recall. I, I, and he did, and I think that was peak Shaq too. He yep. was a monster. Yeah, people said that that was his that that was his his very best year. And you mentioned the the big trade that came from Portland. To back it up just a little bit, when we were t- when you were talking about the previous throwback team, the the Drexler and um, Terry Porter and all those guys. I was reading about them, and one of the things that I thought was really interesting that I did not remember was there was kind of they were sort of a a joke in the league about them being not smart. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys remember that. You're probably too young to remember that. But I went back and I read some old uh, Sports <laughs> Illustrated articles, and they talked about Clyde Drexler, Terry Porter, Jerome Kersey, Buck Williams. None of them were very smart. They were all athletic, but they weren't smart. And so this team, there was this really interesting contrasting narrative that they brought in Scottie Pippen and uh, Steve Smith and they suddenly got very, very smart. And it was the intellect and the, the KG experience of Arvidas Sabonis that was able to get this team, which maybe had some people who were on the, on, you know, on the downhill side, they were still peak, but they were like, you know, heading down as opposed to, you know, Shaq and Kobe. And then we had some, you know, real young guys like, um, uh, you know, Wallace and, and Grant, but I thought it was really interesting that the narrative about this team was how smart they were and how smart Scottie Pippen was. And once we started to watch the game, I was like, holy smokes, you really can tell 
watching Scottie Pippen that he was generaling that game. He was the general on the floor. It was super interesting. Damon Stoudemire my, may have been listed in the starting lineups as the point guard, but there was no if, ands, or buts about it. it Scotty Pippen, he, he was the point yeah. forward. He was the leader. He could score three points, dish out four rebounds and five assists, have a stamp on the game, or he could go like he did in game five, and he took that game. He put his rings on the table pregame and said, if you guys want this, you got to come and take it. And that was the game where he put the team on his back, and he scored so many points. I remember him hitting a clutch three at the end of halftime, and I was like, okay, we got this. All we have to do is take game five. You, know, you definitely know we're going back to the garden in game six and getting that, and then you go and get game seven. So I was, I was really hyped. Um, I was hyped after game two. I was certain after we, we won game two, I believe, 106 to 77. I mean, just crushed Lakers, gave them the worst defeat of the, of the season. And I was certain that we would win game three, game four, probably lose game five, and close it out in six. Um, as a 15-year-old, I was devastated. <laughs> I mean, I'm watching the – and this is on a weekend, too. So I'm watching both games. And both games three and game four, we jump out to a, a double-digit lead in the first quarter and look like we're going to run away. But the Lakers fought back. They won a, cl- a close game in game three, uh, 93-91. And then they handled us pretty, pretty easily after that first quarter in game four, 103-91. And it looked like they were just imposing their will. Like Shaq and Kobe were just too much for our deep team. And they were going to finish us off in, in game five. But, you know, we rallied 96-88 victory. And here we are. We're going to talk about the Blazers-Lakers 19, excuse me, 2000 game six on May 26th of 2000. What were you, did you go to the game? Did you watch it live? Um no, I, I I just watched it on TV. I don't even uh, I don't even really remember it all that well. I remember the next game, um, and I remember thinking, "We'll just pretend that the last game was the last game." <laughs> and I just uh, to this day, I'm just like, "Oh yeah, we won in Game Six, and that was it. That was the end of the that was the end of the run for for that particular year." So yeah, I don't remember it very much while while it was happening. I probably had little kids running around all over the place. But um, rewatching it again, I did have some uh, some funny memories of just remembering 2000, <laughs> the year 2000. How old were you? Can I ask how? old you guys were in the year 2000 i was 15 okay okay so um i was a little older than that um i think i was uh i was 31 and at that point i think we were just also excited that we survived y2k that like anything after that was like gravy (laughs) (laughs) um i one of the things that joe and i do in our podcast is that we do a little quiz sometimes and i have a quiz about the year 2000 and the NBA in the year 2000. Do you guys want to give it a try? Oh, yes. hell yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, I'll warm you up with a with a, a really easy one, and it's more like a world affairs one. And then we'll go into like more uh, NBA specific. So in the year 2000, who was the first lady? Was it Laura Bush? Was uh, it? No, it was Hillary Clinton. Hillary, yeah. <laughs> Yes, yes, that was kind of a trick question. Um, yeah, George W. was running against Al Gore at the time, but Hillary was the that's first right, lady. That's right, that's right, right. We'll edit that so it's like a suitor. <laughs> oh, no, no, I'll take my lumps, Dave. Bring them on. 
<laughs> okay, so you probably re- remember the Olympics were held that year. It was yeah. in they were in Sydney, Australia. They were actually after this this playoff series. They were in Sydney, Australia, and uh, Team USA featured Vince Carter, Alonzo Mourning, Jason Kidd, and they were nearly defeated in the semifinals. Do you remember which country it was? I'll give you a choice. They were almost defeated. They won 85 to 83 against, was it Spain, France, or Lithuania? I want to say, Lithuania was on the top of my head, so that's what I'm going to go with. Yeah, dang it, Lithuania. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was Lithuania, and they, they, the, the, uh, the team USA won because Lithuania missed a last-second three-point shot. Otherwise, they would have won, and they would have gone into the to the gold medal round. Do you guys remember? Uh, for a bonus, there was a blazer on that team. Do you? Oh, that was Smitty. Yeah. He was I think. Cute. I think the iconic moment for me for that Olympics is just Vince Carter dunking over Frederick Weiss. Yep. I remember yeah. seeing that and just going ape shit. And like if, jumped over his whole body. If social media had been around, that would have broke the internet. Oh that is God. still to this day the greatest in-game dunk I have ever seen. Um, yeah, that's going to go down for sure in history. Okay, I got a couple more. You want to do a couple more? Of course. Okay, so this one is about the NBA in general. So this future Hall of Famer played his last game in 1999-2000. He was playing with the Rockets at the time when he ruptured his quad, which effectively ended his career. However, he was able to rehab, come on, play his last game with the Rockets. He played six minutes, scored two points, left the field, immediately retired. Do you remember I who that who was? I know who it is. Do you know who it is? Yeah, it's my favorite player ever, Charles Barkley. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was such – I totally forgotten about that. That was really fun. I to remember about that. That, you know, how Charles Barkley to go back on and play one more play. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was great. Okay. So you brought, you brought, my last question is, uh, and you brought this up just prior to the start of the 1999 season, the Portland Trailblazers traded six players for Scottie Pippen. Six players. I didn't even know they were allowed to do that. <laughs> six players for Scottie Pippen. So it was Kelvin Cato. Well, do you guys want to try to list them? I, I think I can list them. Can okay. you say? I actually knew the Kelvin Cato because he was on the Rockets. So it's Cato. Brian Shaw, uh, Walt Williams, Carlos Rogers, is it Ed Gray, and oh, come on, Sage, help me out. <laughs> what does his first name start with? S. I don't know. Do you want another hint? Yeah. Plastic Man. Oh, Stacey Ogman, that's right, because we got him back. <laughs> That's, That's right. Yeah. Well, that was going to be so. You got it because that was the question. Is one of them was released from the Rockets and immediately turned around and resigned with Portland. Who was that? Stacy Ogman. You got that. The Plastic Man. Well, you guys are good at this. Well, Boy, I, 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 I'm definitely riding Dustin's coattails. <laughs> That's it's amazing. Right. So some people just have an encyclopedic knowledge, and I could have like watched this game last night and forgotten the entire thing. I am amazed. So nice job. Thank you. Hopefully yeah, I, we're all in the mood for 2000 now. We've got. I, I tell everyone who will listen that you, I can all, all of this capacity up here in my brain is really stored for for Blazers knowledge. I mean, there's a couple other common sense things floating around in there, but for the <laughs> most part, it's just trivial, random Blazers <laughs> facts that pop in and out, and most of the time, more in than out. That's why okay, we well, have this podcast, man. Of course. <laughs> so, if we do it again, uh, it'll make it harder. Okay, I, I like that. 
so I, I mentioned the game was on May 26. I'm looking at Basketball Reference, one of my favorite uh, websites out there. Uh, it was actually June 2nd. So June 2nd of 2000, uh, Portland has really all the momentum. I, I feel like the pressure is on the Lakers in this game to close it out. Even if they're playing at home, they don't want it to go to a Game 7. Portland had already beaten them once um, in the Staples Center in the regular season and twice during the playoffs in Game 2 and Game 5. So home court really didn't matter when these two teams played. They were that evenly matched. Uh, what I loved is we got off to a fast start. We led 26-15 after the first quarter. And who really set the tone, I thought, was, was Steve Smith. Yeah, man. Mm-hmm. His post game, he was a fantastic post player, but... Oh, Sage. He was a bad, bad man. Down he was. Home. He's the last of a dying breed because really, after Steve Smith, it was Kobe, and these guards just don't know how to post up. And if if I'm a coach and I have a big six six bulky guard, I'm telling him to get his ass on the block and learn. Watch tape of Steve Smith, Jeff Hornacek, uh, Kobe, MJ. Watch how they work and operate in the post because. If you can score in the post, I know three-pointers are still all the rage. If you can score in the post and you have an advantage over your man, it's going to cause chaos defensively. And back in 2000, there was no zone defense. So either you had to fully commit to a defender or you're left on an island. And Kobe Bryant was not the defender, Kobe Bryant, that most people know. know. I mean, he got, you know, Steve Smith took him to school. Oh, man. Like, I remember him just barreling through him. And, I mean, Steve Smith did, like, the 2-1 pick and roll in Atlanta. He was a super talented uh, basketball player. So. You you look back and you think that we gave up Jim Jackson and Isaiah Ryder for Steve Smith. And, you know, for all the bad things Trader Bob did, that was one hell of a, of a great thing that he did for this team. That that was a that's highway robbery. I hate Jim Jackson so much. <laughs> what did he ever do to you? My goodness. <laughs> he, uh, New Orleans traded for him. And he said he would rather retire than play for that goddamn team. (laughs) Oh, he did take a part. Wow, that is personal. Jeez. Okay, you can you can can have that. Um, One of the reasons I wanted to watch this game was because of Steve Smith. Because I had maybe because he has one of those names that like I can't remember, but I had sort of forgotten about like about him. And I saw him at summer league covering a bunch of games, and somebody mentioned. Gosh, it would be fun to have Steve Smith come and join Kevin Colabro and be a commentator this year. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. I want to go learn more about Steve Smith. So I watched a few of his highlights and I was like, whoa, I had completely forgotten what a fun, dynamic player he was and how strong. And man, talk about a pure scorer. Mm-hmm. Like, give him the ball and it was going in. It that, just was. That shot from three was just I mean, money. if spot up in that corner for three, he's either hitting the fadeaway out of the post or he's doing the up and under. He was... He could handle the ball, like you said, in the pick and roll as well. You know, he had he led the Blazers in scoring. Uh, the only player, it, sec, one of only two players to score twenty. He had twenty six, um, ten of eighteen from the field. He actually led all Trailblazers in field goal attempts. And if you look at the box scores over the course of this ninety nine two thousand season, nearly every game it's a different Blazer that's probably either leading in scoring or leading in field goal attempts. And they really epitomized that twelve deep mantra. And if, if, if it wasn't Smitty, it was Sheed. If it wasn't Sheed, it was Damon. You've got Sabas. You've got Brian Grant coming off the bench. Or, you know, you've got the Wiley veteran, Scotty Pippen, pulling out, you know, one last bag of tricks. That did stand out to me, too, when I was looking at just, like, the overall how Portland did that year. They, they, 
their top scores were, yeah, like 16.9, 19.4, 17, you know, something in those range. Whereas, like, with Shaq, it was like 29.7 or something really lopsided. And you look at this Blazer team, and it's it's almost a flip-flop of the current Blazer team. Because their calling card was defense. They were They were probably the best defensive team in the NBA. They only gave up 91 points a game. That was third best. Um, only scored about 98, which was middle of the road for, for the year 2000. But they really held their own against the arguably one of the best Laker teams in history. And hate them or not, the Lakers are a model franchise and have had many great teams. This 2000 Laker team might be one of the best they've, they've showcased. And the Blazers did, did a great job. I think the Lakers scored only over 100 points um, twice in the entire series. Um, and they averaged like 98, 99. And um, so why was Portland so successful defending the Lakers, do you think? They were in those passing lanes and ready to get steals and run in transition. Because I think Damon Stoudemire made eight out of his, like, eight, his first eight points of the first quarter off transition lay-ins. There was so much arms up smothering people in the corner or on the line uh, in that first quarter with about five minutes left to go. There was a sequence where Pippen and Stoudemire just trapped Kobe. Mm-hmm. I mean, Kobe could not move. And then Damon went for the ball and he missed getting the ball, but Kobe was just ran smack into Sabonis at that point. Like, yeah. And he blocked it. He tipped, he blocked yeah. that. Yeah. It yeah. was, they, I mean, they were just like, on them in every possession. Yeah, and, 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 and you coach Dunleavy. Go ahead, Sage. Go ahead. And it was on the baseline too, so he couldn't go. It was they, they made forced him to go to Salas. Yeah. So it was beautiful. And so if you're coach Dunleavy, you know you're going up against a two-team team. Uh, you need to run them and run them ragged and just play a swarming defense. Use your depth to an advantage. You look at the box score. Both Kobe and Shaq play a full 48 minutes, and they did a lot of that throughout this series. Uh, they knew they couldn't afford to, to take this, this series lightly, or they knew they couldn't afford to lose this series. So they were putting their best guys out there at all costs. And it was just a genius strategy to swarm, to play the passing lanes, to use the depth. If you're looking at Shaq, you, you see Arvidas, who is one of the bigger men I have ever met in my life. The biggest man. He just completely dwarfed me. Sabonis so was a wall. And Shaq had his way with, with Vitas at times, but he made him work. And then you take Sabonis out and you put maybe the long, lengthy Rasheed Wallace or Brian Grant, who's more stout, but he's got a lot of force. And then you're sending guys like Pippen and Steve Smith and Bonzi Wells on the help because you're not worried about Brian Shaw or, you know, Ron Harper, AC Green shooting jump shots. So he is just getting double, triple teamed. If he is getting an open lane, he's getting hacked. Mm -hmm. Uh, Definitely making him work for everything they've gotten. And, you're thinking this is game six. You're trying to take as much energy out of this human being as possible. Have you ever seen the photo with Dustin with uh, Arvidas? No. Oh I would love God. to see that. <laughs> tweet well, that out. We got to tweet that out because I've never seen Dustin so happy all my <laughs> life. Okay, can we just talk about Sabonis right now? Oh, I can love we, him so okay. much. Okay, <laughs> okay. I mean, we could go quarter by quarter, but I just no. One it, of, let's talk one about Arvidas. One of the things that that I so I I Heath I thoroughly enjoyed watching him, and who doesn't? Because 
to me, when I was watching him play, he looked to me like that dad at the birthday party who just like stands there and does magic tricks. And like nobody knows how he's doing it, but all the kids love him and they just can't get enough. And that is what Sabonis looked like out on the field to me. He did magical things with the ball that there's no other explanation for except for that he was doing some kind of an illusion. Because he would he would get the ball in the most unlikely way. And before you even knew what was happening, suddenly Scotty Pippen has it and he's driving or something else is going on and he's doing it. You know, you guys know this, you watched it behind the back, you know, over the shoulder. No, look just, but just with this kind of casual attitude, like, Oh, I do this all the time. Like, you don't know how to do this. I know how to do this. What's your problem. You come on. And he was also like, really tricky there was this one play in the first quarter and I swear he did it on purpose and I, I watched it like five times because I was like what is he doing so basically Sabonis was standing on the three-point line and he's pointing and one of the, if you guys listen to my podcast you know I love pointing because it means people are communicating and it means that they're talking so Sabonis is pointing and I'm like oh awesome but there's like nobody around nobody's looking at him he's just pointing and then like Kobe starts looking around like what is he pointing at and he, Kobe can't tell so he just figures that Sabonis is instructing someone so Kobe like runs into this spot and then all the Lakers like run to the spot where there's nobody and then they just dish the ball over to Sabonis who makes the three-point shot. And he'd like totally fooled everybody with this magic trick of like thinking that there was somebody over there. It was absolutely brilliant. And I'm convinced that he did it on purpose. I mean, that wouldn't surprise me. To me, Sabonis is the greatest passing center of all time. Ever, ever, ever. And I don't even think it's a bait. Bill Walton was amazing. Uh, We've seen uh, a few other centers share the rock, but none with the flair and the accuracy of, of Sabas. And I still maintain to this day, Portland is the dynasty of the NBA, not Michael Jordan, not the Chicago Bulls. If he is able to come over in 86, anywhere between 86 and 90, you get him with that, that, that six guys that we had, it's game over. There's no way any team is touching us uh, with a young, healthy Sabonis. Um, even at his, his older age, he was still a magician, like you said, and I didn't fully appreciate him as much as I really should have when I was 15, but looking back at it now, he definitely would have been one of my favorites. Just the prototypical center you want to have on your team if you're going to you know, negate Shaquille O'Neal because there was no zone defense, so he would bring the big fella out because he could shoot the three, he could pass from that, he could post up, he was a big body to play defense. Um, just an amazing amazing basketball player and I'm so glad that uh, I was able to be around him during that um, Sabonis day it was in August of 2011 when he was inducted into the the Hall of Fame so you got to be you were there when that happened yeah I was working with the Trailblazers at the time and he came and uh, met with the staff took a couple photos and we did a couple behind the scenes things at Pioneer Courthouse Square when um, I think it was Mark Mark Mason introduced him and Mike, Mike Barrett was there and it was just, it was really cool. Was, I think it was the, one of the first times he's bit, he was back in Portland since uh, he retired in 2003. So that was really special. So cool. Show That's up. so cool. Well, watching him on, like he couldn't even run at this point. I mean, imagine, I mean, I, I've watched old tapes of him, you know, playing overseas when he was mobile, but at this point he couldn't even run. I mean, he had this kind of like, he sort of walked on, ran on his, his tiptoes, but not like that sort of graceful Boris Dio kind of tiptoe run more like, Oh God, if I do this any harder, my knees are going to break. And he's, and 
Portland actually played a pretty slow pace, and I think a lot of that was to compensate for the fact that their center couldn't rush up and down the court. They played, they were like the 25th, like, on out of 29 teams, they were like number 25 in terms of pace that year. Um, but yeah, just the way that he casually managed to do all these magical things, I'm convinced that he had some sort of training, like from like some powerful ma- magician before he came over there to pull that off. Otherwise, yeah. there's just no explanation. And the Blazers did a, a fantastic job against Shaq. They they guarded him better than anybody. Shaq was held to 17 points on 17 field goals, just 11 boards. Um, no blocks. And again, this is in 48 minutes. They held him to 41% shooting. You're going to beat the Lakers every single time you hold Shaq to those numbers. The box score says Kobe at 33, but he got a lot of those buckets in crunch, or not crunch time, in garbage time when when the game was, was really out of reach. And so you're Portland and you, you really led this game wire to wire. And there was a couple instances where the Lakers made a push, but my favorite play of probably of the entire season was I believe Portland was up five or seven with a couple minutes left in the third. We dump it into Rashid. He just turns and annihilates Robert Ori on a, a one hand jam. And the, just the, lets the quick, out the quick, powerful step to the right. And then the dunk just the, yeah. yeah, the dunk lets out a, just a big, just a powerful roar. And that really ignited the Blazers and their fans. Um, I loved Sheed. I know he, there's a lot of love hate with him, but I just love the passion he played with, and he gave us such an advantage. So Shaq versus whoever we had was an advantage, but they had absolutely nobody who could guard Wallace um, in the post. He was a man-child that season, and probably one of the biggest reasons I think we pushed the Lakers to a seventh game because I don't think he gets enough credit for being the elite defender that he was. Yeah, top to bottom, I was impressed with the defense in that game. And I remember that uh, that jam, and I remember just a whole series between Rashid and Kobe both got hot at the same time, and they were kind of like trade-in buckets back and forth, trade-in nice plays. That was that was really that was just some pure nice good basketball, especially nice because we were up <laughs> and gonna and gonna gonna win that game. You want to talk about the free throws in that game? Clank City. Uh, <laughs> Linkers were 13 for 27. They shot less than 50%. And didn't Shaq, like, have a run before this game of, like, hitting his free throws? So him just shitting the bed free throw-wise was huge. But I, I gotta say, Sabo's passes were my favorite. Like, the things that made me ooh and ah were just the, the under-the-arm passes. Mm-hmm. From, like, that stuff got me more hyped than the Rasheed Wallace jam. So who would be your was Sabonis be your favorite player from that team, Sage? If uh, if it's the twenty five year old Sage, yeah, I think it's 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 uh, Sabo, Rashid, and C. Smith were the th- three guys I was gravitating to. Who were your favorites on that team, Tara? I would say Sabas and uh, Pippen. I was really surprised at how much I enjoyed watching Pippen just command that, and then. Um, Bonzi Wells was really fun this game. He caught, points. Yeah, and he got like 14, 14 in the fourth, yep. Yeah, he and you could just see like him, the, his buoyancy, he just got bouncier and bouncier as his success went on. That was that was very fun to watch. But yeah, I loved watching Scotty really just command everything and then Sabonis just doing one magic trick after another. Yeah, I loved all of the guys. Uh, probably had the biggest fandom for Rashid. Rashid was my guy, had his posters on my wall, 
loved Damon. I know he took a lot of heat in, in the media, but he was a local kid. Uh, really fun when he got it going. And like you said, you know, Brian Grant was the heart and soul of that team. Uh, Bonzi was the original, actually not the original, Cliff Robinson was. He was the second coming of Cliff as their super sixth man. And he was almost like a mini Steve Smith. You get that guy in the post and it was lights out. And you said he was bouncy and he could get to the rim and he could dunk. And he had played with the energy and enthusiasm. Um, it just rubbed off on, on the fans and, and on myself. And I just loved watching him play. Uh, and then, of course, Pippen. You know, you see him from Chicago come over. You know he's not the same player, but he still brings that that name, that that legend. And then, of course, Vetus. I mean, the passes, uh, just a fun team. And I think if they would have won the Game 7, it might have been them that had that dynasty of that three straight titles because we knew how well they played up until a point in the following season. So it's not like the guys completely fell off. Uh, they were deep, so while some guys were maybe coming off their peak, you had guys like Bonzi Wells who were just you know hitting their stride. So it kind of complemented each other um, in, in many ways. But unfortunately, Game Seven, the fourth quarter, did happen. And uh, no, it um, didn't. That game never happened. That, I just pretend that game doesn't exist. Seeing athletic Bonzi Wells is just was just fantastic. Bonzi could have been a multi All Star um, had he just probably taking care of his body, probably wanted it a little bit more. The talent was, was there. He had the jump shot. He had the post. Um, he played the passing lanes. He, he was a natural scorer. Um, like you said about Steve Smith, Bonzi Wells was almost like the exact same thing. And I think if Sheed had wanted it a little bit more too, I think Rashid could have been better than Kevin Garnett. I think you look pound for pound. They both had similar skill sets, but I've, I always thought Sheed that year was a better player but Garnett just had that mentality, and that's something you just can't teach. Yeah, the, the alpha, the alphaness. The want, the mm-hmm. will to, to lead your team. Um, but for all, all, of, all of the negatives, it was still, you know, arguably the best Trailblazer team we've ever seen. Um, because as great as the 77 Blazers were, they weren't going up against the Shaq and Kobe Lakers. Um, it, there's like the three teams. You know, you got the 77, you've got the early 90s, and then you've got this 2000 Blazer team. So, you know, they were an elite territory for, for all Blazer fans. So at the beginning of the show, we were talking about um, Paul Allen's deep pockets. And this team is a particular example of those deep pockets. I w- I w- did you guys happen to look at the salaries um, for that particular team? They were... Um, so at that point, the salary cap was $34 million. And the Blazers were at 70. So <laughs> I was like, whoa. I mean, yeah. the, the, the Lakers were also considerably over. They had maybe around 50 or something. But we were more than double the cap at that point. And, oh, yeah. Uh, luxury tax. I you, mean, got, crazy. you got Scottie Pippen making $15 million in 2000. Like, that's... Yeah. Damn. Rashid was making, like, 10, almost 11. Damon was making 10. And Sabonis was making 9. Yeah, I mean that was, I, I, it was really interesting to go look at their salaries and compared to, you know, today and this, you know, the shock of what happened this summer. We all knew it was coming, but then when you look and see that, you know, Shaquille O'Neal and probably his best year ever made seventeen million dollars. 
there's a lot of players out there this summer who are going to be coming off the bench who are making $17 million. But anyway... Shots fired! (laughs) Well, no, you you can't compare them. It's not fair to compare them. But I will go back to the point where I was making about Paul Allen showing that he was willing to go in all in and play deep pockets. This team was a really good example of that. Yeah, I don't like to compare the salaries of two. That's, That's not a valid comparison. But it was just interesting to be like, huh, was this your favorite Blazer team of all time, or would you still say the the early 90s? Well, whatever team is playing, the game I'm watching is my favorite <laughs> Blazers team of all time. Um, I... I would I would still go with the early 90s because I wasn't paying as much attention. But if I were to go back, I think, and pay attention, I think there's a lot of things that I would appreciate more about this team. And even those players who were so polarizing and who I admit I was just like, oh, my God, stop getting technical fouls and just being just mortified all those years that they were just piling up. And I was at a place where I didn't understand like what was going on with, I didn't understand everything else that was behind Rashid getting all of those fouls. So I think if I was to go back and really watch this team more, I would have a much greater appreciation of them that I did as uh, than when they were actually playing. And I might end up like, I could see myself liking them better than those early nineties, but you know, you always remember your first, right? Yeah. I'm with you in the early nineties blazers for life, but Rashid called out Tim Donahue before Tim Donahue got in trouble. So he knew something was up. He just his, got his best you know, IQ was outrageously high. Yeah, he was a smart player. Yeah. Uh, people just—it's it, like Demarcus Cousins. He—they he, just play with emotion, and as long as you're not going Draymond Green on somebody and physically kicking them, whether it's accidental or on purpose, I, I would like to see the officials let the players react. I mean, we want them to play with emotion. I, I think we can all agree with that. Fans want to see those guys out there caring. Some guys show how they care in different ways, so I would like to see the NBA let them react, you know, give them a couple seconds to cool down, but, you know, sometimes you just want to yell, God damn, and just throw your hands <laughs> in the air. And stare at somebody, and yes, just stare at them. <laughs> so, that's what I would like to see as a fan, I mean, but I, I, I do think the league definitely would rather have seen the Lakers win. Uh, there was a lot of questionable calls at the end of the game that never took place. We all watched the 2002 <laughs> conference finals against the Kings, especially that game six. I don't know how anybody could watch that game with a straight face and say there wasn't any bias involved in that. Um, of course, I'm not taking any way, anything away from Lakers. They had two top 15 players of all time on that team. Very difficult to beat, but definitely didn't need the assistance, whether <laughs> subtle or not so much, um, from from the referees. But I, you know, Go ahead. I was going to say, I just have a question for you guys about the Laker, this Lakers team. And that is, um, who would, who did you love to hate most in, in this game or on this particular team? I see true story. I I didn't like the Lakers because they, they knocked out the Blazers in 91, but I respected magic. I actually really grew to like Eddie Jones and Kobe when he first got drafted. Eddie Jones Uh, is my dude. But, (laughs) Once they got Phil Jackson and we became kind of elite and I knew it was going to be a showdown, I just started hating him. And there was a couple kids in my high school who, who liked the Lakers. And so, you know, you, just, you kind of talk trash to each other. So I really this was the year of my Laker hatred. Like it really started even more so than in 91. So you've got guys. I think Rick Fox is up there. He was doing some cheap 
tenth at the last fourth quarter. Rick Fox, I think, uh, was a cheap shot artist. Um, I love the end of this game where Mike Dunleavy is just going off, calling him this and calling him that. Uh, I think you can see Brian Wheeler sit up in the background as well, yell and get animated. Um, You know, he's obviously a goon sent by Phil Jackson to get in Scottie Pippen's head, um, which kind of makes me love this series that much more. I love when that shit happens. So Fox is definitely up there, but then Shaq and Kobe, obviously. Um, Anytime A.C. Green made a basket, I kind of shrugged because I'm like, A.C. Green, you screwed us in 91. Just leave us alone. Like, get out of here. Um, And then, of course, Brian Shaw. I will never forget him hitting that three at the end of the third quarter of that game that never took place. (laughs) As a young Asian boy, I always liked uh, Glenn Rice. So I... I, I rooted for Glenn Rice whenever he was there. Not not this game, but, like, I love Glenn Rice. Was it about Glenn Rice? His last name. Oh, Lord, Sage. <laughs> As a young Asian boy... He is not Asian, though. His last name is my favorite food ever. So... <laughs> the inner makings of a nine-year-old's mind right now. That's logic. <laughs> you know what? Rice was my favorite food and still is, so... I, I, I rolled with... I rolled with Glenn Rice. I like that left shrimp because I like shrimp, so I can relate. (laughs) So, uh, assuming Portland would have won this series, they didn't. They did win this game. They um, outlasted the Lakers 103 to 93, tying the series uh, at three apiece. Um, They didn't go on to win the series, as we all know. If they had won Game Seven, do they beat the Pacers? And in how many games, both of you? Yeah, they, oh yeah, I mean, yes, they do, but I don't know on how many games. I got no clue. I, I mean, that, that was 2000. Uh, who, was <laughs> all, who was on the Pacers? Dale Davis, Reggie Miller, Rick oh, Schmidt. Oh, the, the, the same same guys. Oh, we would have won. Yeah, I think it would have take us, taken us as many games as the Lakers, six games. We would have closed it out at home, um, but we didn't. Is Game 7 the biggest heartbreak in your Blazers fandom? I don't know what you're talking about. Game 7 never mm-hmm. happened. We won this one, and that was the end of the year. I actually remember it, so yeah. I I, I remember as a 9-year-old boy being like, oh, that sucks for the Blazers. So yeah, I guess, I guess it is my biggest heartbreak. So it's, it's only spanned three years, so it's like, sure, that, 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 that's, that's it. Again, I was a little too young to comprehend when Porter missed that wide-open shot in, in Game 6 and 91. Still too young to really remember that blown lead in Game 6 against the Bulls in the finals. So this, I was fully invested. I watched every game. I stayed up late. Uh, I wore my Blazers emotions on my sleeve. Like you uh, do today. <laughs> that whole series and that whole season. Um, I was even talking to my dad. Like, we were up. I was like, Dad, can we get Final 6? He's like, yeah, we'll go wait outside of G.I. Joe's and we'll wait for – we'll camp out. We'll get tickets. And I was like, oh, that would have been so amazing. And then it happens. And it's like a train wreck that you want to look away from, but you just can't. You're forcing yourself to watch this this unspeakable act happen against your favorite team. And I think due to the age and what was at stake, easily, easily the biggest heartache. So are you happy or sad that you had to relive it for watching it? Well, no. See, I go back and I'll watch old games all the time. I just won't watch the games we lose in. So I loved watching game yeah. six. Yeah, it was, it was super entertaining. I liked it a lot. 
and if if my logic was that, then I could only really watch the 77 games because that was the only time we won. So I, I, I find the joys in the wins. Well, thank you for letting me pick. I'm really excited. It opened my eyes to, like I said, a, a period of time where I kind of probably wasn't paying enough attention. And um, yeah, man, these guys were good and smart and... Boy, if we could have had Sabonis in his heyday, but even Sabonis not in his heyday was still totally worth the price of admission. Totally worth watching. Mm-hmm. And it was like the beginning of Brian Grant. You know, I mean, there were I had a bunch of like stray random observations that I was making about uh, what was going on. And one of them was that, you know, just um, like we had we, we hadn't even seen really. Um, what Brian Grant was going to develop into, and we had we had a hint of it. He was a lot thinner than I remembered him being. I don't know if he bulked up many years later, but um, I really loved um, watching him play. He had that weird. He had some like amazing hair. It was like the beginning of his like hair uh, style, and you know now we've got Myers Leonard growing out his hair. You know, I think we can make some comparisons between. Don't you think? I, I just I just love that they they were the, the team that brought back the headbands. Like Cliffy rocked it, but yep, they brought back the headbands. You know, can I get a headband? Came, came out, and then the next year we had a winning streak, and every blazer but Sabonis wore a headband uh, on, <laughs> uh, in and New you York. Know he was like, no. <laughs> um, I just love that they brought back the headband. I I loved it. I wore a headband when I played that age because they they rocked it. Um, if anybody from the Blazers fan shop is listening, find a way to get some Sabonis and Rasheed Wallace jerseys from that era. I would buy that shit up like there is no tomorrow. I would buy a Sabonis jersey instantly. And Do you remember in 91 when, when Clifford Robinson would go in and everybody in the arena would put their headbands on? I had forgotten about that until I watched that last game. That was really funny. Everybody, like They would show like all these... like older people in the front row, you know, putting on their headbands because Clifford was coming in. And he would sometimes change out the headband. If he had a bad mm-hmm. first half, he might sub white for red or red for black. Yeah. Um, I remember he had a tri-colored one, which was simply amazing. And I wanted so hard to figure out where, where to buy one of those. Um, <sighs> but alas, I was just an Albany kid in 91 with really no no culture. No hookup no, with, no hook uh, with, the, with the headbands. <laughs> Nothing. You, you should do it for your city game. City League games now, though. Bring it back. Yeah. So uh, thank you again, Tara, for joining us on this podcast. Let our listeners know where they can find you. So I write for and a podcast on BlazersEdge.com, which if uh, y'all don't uh, know what it is, it's a, f- it's a fan site, but it's more than that. They've got some just fantastic writers who do like really deep and fantastic analysis that always under- helps me understand what's going on more. We have people who understand all of the salary cap and how free agents and all that works. So if you have any questions about what's currently going on with the Blazers, it's a great place to, uh, to catch up. Joe and I do the podcast two times a month. We do it on the first Saturday and on the third Tuesday. And then there's also other podcasters on the Blazers Edge Network who are also fun to listen to. So um, I want to thank you guys for having me on. It was really fun to talk to you. Of course. And for our listeners out there, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Uh, Leave us that five stars if you like what you're hearing. Uh, We're also on uh, Stitcher and SoundCloud at Holy Backboard PDX. Google Play as well. Google Play as well. Thanks to my man, Sage. Uh, if you feel inclined, you can uh, send us an email at holybackboardpdx at gmail.com. And we're also on social uh, Twitter, Instagram, at holybackboard, 
Um, you can find me at dhaws22 and my friend Sage. The Sage? I think it's the Sage. I- Sage, I, I gave you this one mulligan very early in our podcasting career where I shouted you out and you didn't know your handle, so you don't get a second chance. You can't I think it's the Sage. It. It's the Sage. One job. So I, I don't know it. I just type it in. I mean, you, you just produce the podcast. Yeah. So we'll that. You can't be bothered with the details. Huh? Yeah. No. And we will be bringing you a Throwback Thursday editions of this podcast along with any uh, breaking news that happens throughout the summer. If you have any suggestions on uh, past Blazer games we should discuss, hit us up in the comments on SoundCloud or on Twitter. We are more than happy to, to take your suggestions. And until next time, let's go, Blazers. Let's go.